You are now listening to Fresh of My Fresh Podcast. Your host is Curtis Metcalf. I got a special guest with me out here while I'm out here on the grill in the front yard. His name is Beejus Philbin. And if you don't know the theme music, I'm going to tell you. Because I would just, that would be a quiz or something for the diehards out there. But that's the theme music from the original broadcast of uh, Jim Crockett Promotions Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. All my people in Philly and the DMV know about it. They have, you know, everybody that's like 40 plus, 40 years old plus know about that. And uh, they know about it. They, they have the memories. They have the memories of um, who I want to say. I want to say a certain wrestler. Ricky, I want to say the Ricky Steamboat. Ricky Steamboat, uh, Jay Youngblood, Wahoo McDaniel, and then of course you cannot forget the Nature Boy. Woo! Yes, him and uh, when him and Greg Valentine. We're a tag. We're a tag team. The Minnesota Wrecking Crew. The, the Minnesota original. Re- the Minnesota Minnesota Crew. of uh, of uh, Ole Gene Anderson and, Ole and Gene Anderson. Anderson. Yes, sir. Yes, Rufus sir. Rufus R. Jones. Um, Tony Atlas was there. Yep. Tony Atlas, Kim Patera. Um, is somebody else I'm forgetting? Rowdy Roddy Piper. That's who I'm forgetting. Did I say Wahoo McDaniel already? Yep. I don't think you said Wahoo. Wahoo McDaniel. Wahoo McDaniel. Uh, Tully Blanchard. Uh, we're pretty much yeah. transferred down from uh the old Houston Ooh. wrestling and, and from his and from his dad's old promotion Southwest Championship Southwest Championship too. Wrestling. Yes, 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 sir. Yes, sir. And um, as I said before, this is the wrestling episode. So uh, we just want to um get some things clear. We pretty much given a diatribe about like how people. Or basically online clout chasing. Oh, yeah. clout chasing uh with these podcasts, oh, with yeah, these yeah, let's start, yeah, with these wrestling podcasts, or rather these sports entertainment podcasts that exactly. talk about nothing, that talk about Just nothing but uh WWE or AEW. Right, and don't even care about wrestling, not even in their own communities. All, all they want to do is just lure their casual fans in, just to talk about one or two things with WWE. And not really take it seriously, just a pander and shit. And they, y'all don't even support your own community. Yeah, we can let it ha- all hang out because I, I feel like it's needed. It's needed for this issue right here, yeah. you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, feelings finna be hurt tonight, but fuck it. Right, 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 right on. So, uh, I'm going to play the nine, you play the target, you know? Um, I think what a lot of these podcasts lack is just the the basic history. Oh yeah, uh, history, the death of it. Uh, they don't even know. They don't even know the meaning of kayfabe or anything like that. You know. Do they saying? even know what the difference between a wrist lock and a wristwatch is? I doubt it. Yeah. I doubt it. Um. Do they even remember? Like you know, what's what's the a what's the uh a match b match c match all that. Right. Yeah. Like I just. No, I mean, basically, basically, none of them, none of their uh, know-how, technical know-how, even dictates what they um, what they may know. You could tell when they talk on these podcasts, 
where their knowledge base starts at. And it's usually the attitude era of WWE. Yeah, like, I can't take a podcast seriously if if the person's base knowledge starts... Like in 1995, because I right. was not even 1995, basically 1997, when Austin and The Rock really got live, but they don't care about. Or oh, Survivor Series 97. Yeah, Montreal. The Montreal Screwjob. Yeah, I think that's when it really got. That was a point to where it really got casual. To where it's oh, like yeah. you know, like the Montreal Screw, the Montreal Screwjob made the news. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Exactly. The Montreal Screwjob made the news by like you know, just the uh just the stipulation alone. Like they called the match like Vince McMahon run the bell. Like you know, Bret Hart wasn't even close to losing the match. Right. Wasn't yeah. Even, wasn't even playing to tap out, and then next thing you know, you hear the bell, and all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose, and but. Yeah, yeah, I think that was like top top tier moment in WWF history and even they started circulating little moments like that that you know True. the best of I have the best of Raw volume 1 on VHS in my room right now, you know what I'm saying? Like I need oh, yeah. to pull out the memorabilia just to show you, you know. I got I got WrestleMania 10 on yeah, tape. See, in, in yeah, in that 94 and 95 era had its own special things like actually seeing Bob Backlund who was the howdy duty of the old WWF turn heel and really just become an ass wipe and a bigger ass wipe than people ever would have expected him to be and you know what I think it was a bigger it was a bigger payoff for him because He's being introduced like, okay, he was a WWF champion before WrestleMania. I mean, before, before, before Hulkamania. Yeah, before, yeah, before, well, before Hulkamania. Before Hulkamania was a thing. Hulk Hogan. And brought Hulkamania from the AWA. (laughs) That's something we got to touch on. Yeah, that's something we have to touch on, but then not to not to leave not to leave Bob Backlund out of there because there was a build up. There was definitely a build up to Hulkamania and that whole um, what can I what can I say? The whole explosion of pro wrestling in the mainstream like that yeah, in that era. Right, right, right. So Bob Backlund, for folks for folks who don't know, he was a, a WWE champion. In the era before Hulk Hogan had the belt, and before Vince, and before Vince McMahon got the company from his dad. Right, right. People don't know that Bob Backlund used to face off in matches with Ric Flair, who was the NWA World Champion, and at the Harley time. Race too. Exactly. That used to be inter. That used to be inter. Uh, interleague. I'm gonna say interleague uh, matches between the two uh, the two federations, the National Wrestling Alliance and the uh, World Wrestling Federation. Well, somewhat, but but that was also because the WWF was also a member of the National Wrestling Alliance. Okay, okay, I'm gonna let you I'm gonna let you get the mic and uh, you explain that you explain that right there for the listeners. All right, so for all of those that 
were that were probably born in the eighties, like yours truly, on on back into the nineties and the two K babies and all and all that. Believe it or not, the, the NWA used to be a big company that had national territories all around the U.S. and in the Canada and even different parts of the world like the U.K., New Zealand. But as far as America is concerned, the WWE you know, was a territory at one time. First is Capital Wrestling under... Vince McMahon's granddad, Jess McMahon, Jess and, McMahon and his uh, dad, Vincent James McMahon. Oh, oh, see, I didn't know that. Yeah, Big Vince. See, see, so it was a family. It was truly a family business. Right, right. Yeah, the the McMahons are a deep dynasty. And take your time, Pastor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I will go off. I will go off. But go ahead. Uh, Vince McMahon and uh, Jess McMahon. Yep. We'll see. Well, Capital Big- Wrestling Corporation. Yeah. Right. See, and Grandpa Jess and Big Vince ran a territory that was primarily the northeastern states like NY, Connecticut, where WWE Studios is now. Stanford, Connecticut. Yeah, Stanford, yeah. Connecticut, yeah. just yeah. outside yeah. of NY. That's the home base. And then you had Boston and Massachusetts. You know, I, I have to say the city outside the state because Boston has always been a big WWE city. Right. I mean, that, I mean right. that's where you got that invisible rascal named John Cena from. You the can't one see because you, you can't see him. Right. But, but to add to the history of just Boston, you know, I don't want to disagree with you by, by it being a WWE city. It's a base. It's a base just by, you know, Stanford, Connecticut. Um, right, it's got all... Pro wrestling through all, throughout all of New England has been a, a subject of not contention, but, you know, the culture. Right, I mean, yeah. Killer Kowalski. Killer Kowalski. Oh, yeah, and, and, and Killer Kowalski, Yeah. for those of y'all that might not know, was actually Hunter Hearst Helmsley. Well, most of y'all know him just he as trained, Triple H. He trained Hunter Hearst Helmsley. Was his Before mentor. he was Hunter Hearst Helmsley, though. He was Paul John Paul Levesque. Yeah, yo, John Paul Levesque and terrorizing in and WCW. And terrorizing when he started it, when he got his start in WCW. All right, well, yeah, that's on down. That's on down the road. Yeah, we'll discuss that later on. Yeah. So, yeah. as far as so as far as WWE is concerned, as a territory, like so, the you had the northeastern states. Then also included Pennsylvania. Yeah, Philadelphia. It got down to Maryland. I want to add. I want to add in some on that is um the dominance that uh that the World Wrestling Federation, well before it was the World Wrestling Federation, it was capital. We're going to refer to it as uh, Capital Sports. Right. Yeah, Capital Sports uh, Corporation. and uh, Well, Capital Wrestling Corporation, because there's two. There's Capital Wrestling Corporation and there's Capital Sports, which is the World Wrestling Council down in Puerto Rico. We're not talking about them, though. We're talking about all WWE-related stuff right now, like where it started. So... As far as WWE is concerned, you had them starting in Stanford, Connecticut. 
which also inadvertently caused them to grab the market in um they had the biggest market per population right as far as like people as far as like people that would go to shows and that's madison that's boston garden yeah boston garden that's madison square garden in new york city yep and that's a spectrum in philadelphia yeah, those were the three main outlets. And that was a lot of money for them. Oh, yeah, a lot of money, a lot of fanfare. And that, and that wasn't just with USA Network, like what Raw is on now. That was before. Like, that even goes back to WWOR, the local yeah. TV station around NY, which as big as NY is, local might as well be national to somebody else. Uh, they could have been, they could have very much been, wow, you just put me on to something. WWOR, I'm lacking on the history of that television station, but they could have very much been a super station, just like how WGN and WTBS was. Right, was, exactly. Know. Exactly. I mean, they have all they have all the tools, and they have, they had the fan base, core fan base. Just from NY and Jersey alone, but that tells the tale of that tells the tale of uh, the territories and stuff like that. Yeah. Pro wrestling wasn't looked at like how it is today. Yeah, like, it was block programming, and you know they had to. You know, pretty much Vince had to buy uh, slot time to put his productions on air. And you know, like TV TV stations had to back then they had to uh, reserve a uh, block programming, paid programming. In other words, like today, where you see like you know Tony Roberts uh, put on something for his uh, exercise, for you know for something for you to exercise, or uh, you know how today you don't have Saturday morning cartoons, but you have like educational programs for like maybe two hours out of the day. Like on the major networks or something like that, you know. So right. wrestling was like that, but you could do it in the daytime or the nighttime. Yeah. I remember, I remember growing up as a youngin, uh, watching WWF Superstars on Wrestling of uh, on the USA Network. Right. On the USA Network, this is when cable had that whole explosion right there. This is right in the boom of the wrestling boom. This is right in the middle of the wrestling boom of the early '80s and stuff like that. Other other territories, the next biggest. I'm gonna say the next biggest territory was like a Georgia Championship Wrestling. Right. See, and I don't want to jump across. Yeah, cause, yeah, cause we got yeah, cause we got pull back to where the WWE went independent yeah let's go back to let's All go right. back to that so let's rewind back to 1963 mm-hmm. very early january 1963 so the nwa the national wrestling alliance was made as a governing body of different territories like wwe well capital wrestling yes. and then you had and then you had Jim Crockett promotions that ran the Carolinas and Virginia and Mid-Atlantic Wrestling. Doing, doing business as Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. Right. Then you had then you had territories in Georgia that would later give you know, make way for Georgia Championship Wrestling in Georgia, the late 70s yes, yes. and early 80s, which was covered by 
Channel 17 in Atlanta, WTCG, which we all know now as TBS. WTBS. That, uh, Ted Turner ran WTGC, and yeah. it was operating with the premise of it becoming a uh, superstation, super which was the next best thing to having uh, a cable channel or cable network. This this would be the roots, which is a whole other subject. This would be the roots of what uh, Turner Broadcasting would become. Right, because it was like as, as, as Georgia Championship Wrestling expanded, so did TBS. Yes, it automatically, it automatically did that. Basically, Ted Turner was interested in wrestling because it made him money in uh, in the networking in the uh on the uh channel right and so he bought into he bought into the slot time for uh georgia championship wrestling and there are people who was like 50 and 60 plus who lament the uh the times that georgia championship wrestling is not on the air you know people people are nostalgic for that era and they wish it was still around, but you know, long story short, uh, Terry Turner liked wrestling. It made him money, right? And so J- Georgia Championship Wrestling was something he was putting money in. So, so, <coughs> excuse me. It became lucrative for Georgia Championship Wrestling to keep producing the shows that it did oh. right there inside the uh, WTGC yeah. studio. Right. Seeing. Georgia was a hot territory Very for those hot. that didn't know like a lot of a lot of wrestlers got their start Dusty Rhodes Kevin mm-hmm. Sullivan well Kevin Sullivan got his start in like uh well he well he kind championship of wrestling from Florida but still yeah within the NWA umbrella umbrella yeah yeah, t- yeah an umbrella is the right term for it yeah, yeah you had wildfire Tommy Rich ooh you had the the Freebirds. Let's see. Well, Terry Bam Bam Gordy. He got his start really in uh Bill Watts Mid South wrestling. Mid South, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, oh, well, well, well I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but his first major match was like against Big Cat Ernie, Ernie Ladd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he he was an interesting story because Terry Bam Bam Gordy was like only 14 or 15. Yeah, at the time, yeah. but he was had so to be, you tall. Had to be like seventeen or eighteen to actually be a professional wrestler. Right, he kind of snuck into the business just like Jeff Hardy would in the nineties. Oh, that's a. I like how you connected that because the guy who trained them to enter to entry into the in into the WWF was Michael P. S. Hayes. He nah, was under nah, Doc Hendricks. No, nah, actually, no, nah, uh-uh. No, nah, we can't even blame. No, nah, we can't even uh, put. Oh, the, you want me to go back further? No, nah, uh, actually, the Italian Stallion Italian trained Stallion. the Hardy Boys, and then Michael Prissy, Sissy Hayes. I mean, yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> Michael. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get into all these wrestlers later on, but yeah, we still talking about yeah, yeah. Y- y- y'all will remember the Hardy Boys with Michael Hayes. That's what we were discussing. But um, all right, so Michael Hayes. And Terry Gordy, yeah, started in the territories of both Memphis and Georgia Championship Wrestling around 1979-1980. Okay. And they first got their big national TV start on TBS with Gordon Soley, who was the the uh, the dean. The dean. 
of color commentating in professional wrestling. Whoa, brother. Like, like, oh, I remember Gordon Soley. At least I used to I used to associate Gordon Soley with World Class Championship Wrestling, but that was uh that was the other guy. Right. That was the other guy. I can't name his name right now. I'm not and I'm sorry. And I'm sorry. I'm supposed to be more professional than this. Probably. <laughs> I want to say Bill Russell, but Bill Russell's the basketball player for like, the Boston Celtics. But um Bill Mercer. That's who his yeah, name is. Bill yeah, Mercer. Bill Mercer. Yeah, cause, yeah, yeah, because you were about to get mixed with Lance Russell up in Memphis. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, See, yeah. that was the mix-up. That was the mix-up. Lance Russell. And, you know, I remember Lance Russell for watching the earlier World Championship Wrestling, like, when Jim Crockett got bought up by... Uh, Ted Turner, but I don't want to go deep. Right, yeah, that. yeah, cause, yeah, cause, yeah, because that'll be later on down the road. Yeah. So, yeah. like, Georgia had Dusty Rhodes, had Tommy Rich, had the Freebirds, Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy. You had Kevin Sullivan. You had uh, Austin early. Idol. The the uh the Universal Heartthrob. Yep. The Universal Heartthrob, Austin Idol. You had uh Jake Roberts before he became Jake the Snake Roberts. Right, and he was part of the Legion of Doom with the Road Warriors. Yes, the roots were planted for the Legion of Doom in Georgia, Georgia Championship, Championship Wrestling. Wrestling. And by the way, y'all, the Road Warriors were part of the Legion of Doom. They weren't the whole Legion of they Doom. They weren't the whole Legion at of the Doom. Beginning. I went my whole. I went. Every year of the 80s and going into the 90s, thinking like, you know, when um when the when the Road Warriors made it to the uh WWF. Yeah. That's where they they were they were called the Legion of Doom and I thought I I always thought the Road Warriors they had to change their name because they had to go by Legion of Doom because of the copyright that was going on with uh the Mad Max movies. The Mad Max uh, movie. Yeah. I always thought that. I always thought that, but they still got it off because the Legion of Doom was really like, you know, in left back in Georgia Championship Wrestling. They was always called the Road Warriors because of the uh they was movie the world the Road There was the world title, there was the world tag team champs in uh the AWA, there was the world tag team champs in the NWA. And then when they came to WWF they became the world tag team champions. So they was like the pretty much the first uh, triple, triple crown, crown champions, and you add in the tag team championship that they won in IWGP. Yep. Yeah. That pretty much makes them a grand slam, and they made them for the, the world already. That for that time, the greatest tag team, the greatest tag team of all time. Right. Yeah. And, and to further explain that, it comes from an era, nineteen eighty-two, after having so many other guest visitors from different territories. Like, sometimes Bob Backlund would come down to Georgia. Flair would come down from the Carolinas, especially when he won his first World Heavyweight Championship in September 81. After after he beat Harley Race? Well, actually, actually he beat Dusty. Whoa. Or, yeah, because this is what happened. And I, and I remember watching it as a little boy uh, on, some, on some rerun tapes. Like, Dusty... Actually, Dusty Rose actually beat Harley Race in the Omni for for the World, NWA World, World Heavyweight, Heavyweight Championship. Championship. Yep, and like as soon as that pinfall came, 
the fans started rushing the crowd just to shake his hand in the Omni. Like, it was pretty much <laughs> virtually a riot because Dusty won the world title. And that was legitimate because mm-hmm. back then, the, the atmosphere and the era of it was like wrestling, professional wrestling was a real thing. Like, you know, yeah, you, like didn't, MMA. You, didn't, you didn't have you didn't have people rush the ring for just any old reason. You know what I'm right. saying? Right. I mean, th- well, it, it, Ric Flair was like the upcoming heel and he was a good he was a good heel. And Dusty Rose was like, you know, the American mm. dream, the son of a plumber. He gave you the hard times promo. He gave you so many dope promos and then, you know, he was like one of the only ones The Bud Awards, if you will, daddy. He was the only one that was going up against the full horsemen like that, you know? Right. See, and, and Flair and yeah, Flair and Dusty would be pretty much the <laughs> the Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote of the 80s <laughs> because it was always back and forth. I like that. I yeah, like that. but back, but, all right, so for my 90s and 2K babies just listening, back then... We didn't have those, this is awesome, chants that you get now. You didn't have that. Uh Uh-uh. People actually felt shit behind what they saw on wrestling. You actually actually had the people. Rushing the ring. It was was just. When shit got real. They was rushing the ring. And when the heel heel wrestler won, that was the brink of them throwing trash, throwing popcorn and drinks into the Right. Rooms. That didn't just start with Hulk Hogan and you know, join the NWO. Nah, that was like I think when 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 uh Hulk Hogan, that bash at the beach pay per view. Yep. Right. And uh he turned on uh he turned on Randy Savage in that match. Yep. Yeah, when he came on and Randy Savage on that match and uh Pause. Leg drop, <laughs> and leg dropped him. He gave, he gave, he gave, he gave uh, Randy Savage a leg drop with uh, Kevin Nash and Scott, and Scott Hall. Hall in the ring, and declared like the new world order in wrestling and stuff like that. I think not only was it a landmark moment in wrestling, I think that was like the whole gauntlet was thrown down. Like, oh yeah, that was a moment in wrestling. That was a know? throw. That was a throwback moment. And even then, I mean, for that, for the '90s, that was big. But even then, that might be the biggest heel turn. But it also has to contend against just the heat from different heel turns that happened in the early and mid '80s, like it was a whole- Ole Anderson turning on Dusty Rhodes against Ivan Koloff <laughs> in 1980. <laughs> I, I mean, think, I think certain things you couldn't call if you didn't think it was a setup. Like you pretty much was attached to a certain wrestler if the uh, circumstance came about. Like, like say, you know, uh, Dusty Rhodes versus Superstar Billy Graham in the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. You right. Know what I'm and Billy Graham was the uh, was the world champion. Or whatnot, you know what I'm saying? It, it kind of like you know, depending on who you are, you went with Dusty Rhodes. True. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like people but, looked at Dusty, like people looked at Hulk Hogan in the '80s and looked at Austin in the '90s. Say that again, man. Oh, oh, I didn't stutter. 
Like say that again, cause I think they need to hear that. Yeah, Dust, yeah Dusty that Rhodes was pretty much treated in fanfare, just like what Hulk Hogan was in the '80s and Austin in the '90s. And I asked you to say that again because I was, I will, I'm still am. That's not past tense. Um. I was, I, I, I mean, let me get it out. Um, I be in different groups, NWA related groups. Right. That contends that like Sting wasn't, uh, he wasn't uh, the NWA's counterpart to Hulk Hogan. But there was a build up to Sting being at that stature, you know, right. and they was working on it. Dusty Rhodes was pretty much that Hulk Hogan figure to Hulk Hogan in the WWF. Exactly. And pretty much at the same time, like, I would say that Dusty's prime was in the early 80s in Georgia Championship Wrestling, but... His prime. Like, even into the mid and late 80s, as we will discuss later on, because we're going to talk about Jim Crockett promotions that became World Championship Wrestling. Mm Mm-hmm. As time, yeah, as we keep going, and I would look, I would love it because you, uh, you explain it, you explain what, what all that makes up better than I do. So, uh, yeah, let me get the bike. We're gonna take a break for a minute, and uh, we're gonna mark this the first segment after these messages. Yeah, you know, we're just getting everything together for the pipe bomb. Yeah, okay, segment we gonna call this the pipe bomb right now. Uh, we just gave y'all a deficient, a somewhat efficient. Nah, nah, nah. Damn that. We gave y'all a deficient history, a brief history, cause everything else you have to dig into to be a connoisseur. You know. Um, that rabbit hole is so deep. By the time you, you know, pop up, you end up in China. All right. So. Um, we explained like an early part. We can still we can still keep on the early part. You know WWE. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Cause we still got the uh we still have marks out here who think that WWE is the end all and be all of pro of pro wrestling and sports entertainment. And that, and that's the only thing that anybody really wants to discuss when it's when WWE is wrestling, but it's not all of wrestling. It's like everybody's zombies when it comes to certain topics certain worldly topics especially like um little things like pro wrestling you know right it's just like do you even see wrestling in your own community right do you even look at the local the local acts the local uh promotion that could and just this is for everybody whether I mean we we in Mobile, Alabama, we have history. I mean, Paul Bearer's from here. Graduated from McGill. Before McGill Tulin became McGill Tulin, as and he was William Moody. William Moody before he became Percy Pringle the third. Starring in World Class Championship Wrestling into the United States Wrestling Association 
And then becoming uh, Kane, the Undertaker's manager. Well, let's see. Then don't forget, he was really also in championship wrestling from Florida. Oh. And Uh-oh. he actually managed Ravishing Rick Rude. Get out of here. And get this. Lex Luger. Get out of here, man. At the same damn time. Get out of here, bro. I don't believe you. I don't believe you, bro. I don't believe you. Paul Bear as Percy Pringle the Third actually brought Luger into the business. He managed. He managed upstanding top tier wrestlers for that time before they was top tier. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, he also had the PYT Express of Narville Austin, who was retiring, and Coco Ware. Get out of here, man. Down to Florida. I don't believe you, man. I don't believe you, dog. Hey. I don't believe you. You sitting here on this podcast with me, on my podcast, telling me all this. I don't believe you lying, but come on, man. Hey. Come on with it. Come on with it. WWE Network is not the end-all, be-all for old-school wrestling footage. If you really want to piece together the, the puzzle pieces to what wrestling is all about. The network pretty much just owns shit from, like, all the other older territories. Like, for instance, just like how he has all of Jim Crockett promotions in the WCW part of the WWE Network. I was about to say, I was about to correct you, too. Now, go ahead. Go ahead, go But, yeah, we'll get into that deep dive in a second. But... The territories that we're discussing, well, we did go a little bit brief about how WWE was a territory, and then we did Georgia Championship Wrestling, Mid-Atlantic that ran the Carolinas and Virginia, let's see, and then around the Gulf Coast area, you had Championship Wrestling from Florida that was pretty much from Tallahassee on, on down through Tampa and Orlando and Miami, and then... Like, Northern Alabama had a couple. Like, they had, let's see, they had NWA Mid-America in, in the beginning of the 60s. It, re- but, it, re- it reached into Alabama. Right, yeah, because Birmingham was part of their territory. And then after the 1977 split, which created Continental Wrestling Association of Memphis, like, the shows area... And pretty much Northwest Alabama, and I think Huntsville ended up being in part of the Continental Wrestling Association Memphis Network. And the Eastern End ended up being part of the new Southeastern Championship Wrestling, which operated out of Knoxville, and then Birmingham ended up being a key city. Mm-hmm. Montgomery, and then Dothan, especially. Dothan was like. Really, uh, that was a hub. That was a hub. It was a hub. And then Mobile, right, was originally Gulf Coast Championship Wrestling. Mobile and Pensacola Mm -hmm. were Gulf Coast Championship Wrestling, and that extent in that territory with the Fullers. Yeah, really, Gulf Coast was Lee Fields, and then the Fullers, which Mm -hmm. were Mm -hmm. Ron Fuller. And His brother Robert Fuller. That if you watched WCW in the nineties, he was Colonel Robert Parker, that man Chargham Heat, and he was also Tennessee Lee in the WWF. 
<laughs> yeah, those I are the vaguely first. remember that. And then, yeah, so they, so when, so 1979, yeah, Alabama was pretty much split into two segments because Southeastern, which was Knoxville and Northern Alabama, mm-hmm. ended up buying Gulf Coast. Yep. And they all ran as Southeastern Championship Wrestling from late 79 out to, like, the middle of 1985 when Southeastern changed its name to Continental Championship Wrestling. And there was an NWA territory which had certain tra- certain talent that traveled in and out of Georgia, like Austin Idol. Mm-hmm. You had the original Midnight Express of... Loverboy Dennis Condry and, from uh, Muscle Shoals. Right. You had Ravishing Randy Rose. And then you had Norvell Austin, who was the only black member, but also a founding member of the Midnight Express. That, and that, that was the original lineup for the Midnight Express. Right. And we'll before, get, before before Jim Cornette entered the picture. And, and beautiful Bobby Eaton and Sweet Stan Lane. Yeah, yeah. Let's yeah, see. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, then yeah. you also had... The whole Armstrong family, which you had Bullet Bob Armstrong. Oh, the bullet. Let's see. And he had, let's see, sons Brad Armstrong, RS his soul. He passed. And he was uh, was one of the most underrated wrestlers of all time. He was a phenomenal wrestler. Let's just say that. He was a phenomenal wrestler. uh, Definitely deserved better out of the business. He had oldest brother Scott Armstrong and Steve Armstrong, mm-hmm. and then you had Brian Armstrong, which <laughs> yeah, go ahead, go ahead, brace yourselves, it. y'all. Brian Armstrong is actually the road dog Jesse James from the New Age Outlaws. Oh, you ain't know? Yo, ass better call somebody. That was somebody, that was somebody I really, like, not even low-key, I looked up to. Because I know the lineage of the wrestling family where he came from, you know? Right, and believe it or not, Road Dogg's first match actually was in Continental in 1986 against Kevin Sullivan. Mm. He was still in high school, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Road Dogg Jesse James actually was still about 17 years old when he first had started wrestling in Continental, but he ended up deciding to go to the Marines, and that's how he ended up and, uh, being a Gulf War vet. Yeah, he was a Desert Storm. He served he served time for our country in Desert Storm. Right, and then he picked up his wrestling career when he came back as the roadie in the WWF for Jeff Jarrett. And then branching out as a... Well, he also spent time in WCW, but his main... Stint was being in the WWF as, Jared, as the roadie for Jeff Jarrett and then becoming a singles wrestler of his own before DX. But he comes from that same Armstrong family tree. He's the youngest of the Armstrong brothers. So the Armstrongs <laughs> and the Fullers were pretty much the most instrumental families in Southeastern and Continental Wrestling. Wow, they inspired a lot of people to like, you know, get in the ring to uh, to even learn the art of it, you know.
right? And then you had different travelers like like Arn Anderson you know, came in Ooh. from Georgia Championship Wrestling. Well, at that time, they they changed the name of the TV show from Georgia Championship Wrestling to World Championship Wrestling. Right. So it was pretty much the 1.0 of WCW in Georgia. But in late 83 and going into 84 and then early 85, Arn Anderson flourished as a member of the Tennessee Stud Stable headed by Robert and Ron Fuller. And that's where he developed his famous spine buster. No. And, and you won't find Southeastern and Continental wrestling footage on the WWE Network. You can actually find that on YouTube. You can actually find some old Southeastern uh, footage on YouTube. And that was like something we alluded to earlier with uh, the WDB, uh, WWE they can only show so much network because of what's in their archives and what they've gathered from other territories that they bought because dealing with the DuPont network, it dealt with the um it dealt with the motive that they had to record over the old tapes that they already had, you know. So it it's countless matches. True. It's countless matches that they had already, but they didn't stash them away. Because, you know, I, I don't know how plentiful magnetic tape or videotape was back then right, or yeah. even if it was considered something that was valuable. Right, but you got to love that raw and authentic grainy footage as it gets older. Like, that's the essence of old school wrestling because and how the WWE Network just really just edits everything and then dubs all the original theme musics like that just takes away from the actual aura and the actual feel and the emotion of old school wrestling but yeah back to travelers that were in and out of southeastern going into continental championship wrestling you also had wayne ferris that (laughs) came in from memphis the Honky Tonk Man. Yep, and became the Honky Tonk Man. He became about the Honky Tonk Man later in, in, in WWF. After Vince got him for the WWF. Once again, like, I mean, let me uh, let me take the mic right here. Uh, the Honky Tonk Man. Um, I used to keep up with how long he held the uh, Intercontinental Championship, but he held it for like 130 plus days. I just want people to know that, like, how influential and instrumental he was in pushing up the WWF, even with that mid-card belt, the Intercontinental Championship. He had the prestige versus the, you know, the in contrast to what it is today, this man held the belt for, like, 430-plus days. Yeah, and stuff, you know what I'm saying? And he was a Memphis. And he was he came out of the CWA uh wanting them to get bigger gains and stuff like that. And he put on that gimmick. He put on that gimmick for uh Vince McMahon along with another like he's like if it wasn't for Ted DiBiase being the million dollar man, he would have been the number one guy I would have picked to like, you know, uh have that gimmick that he had. He had the honky tonk man. He was a dope. He was a very good. He was a very great heel. 
he was a very great heel. I mean, amongst the people that came in between '87 and '89. True, and there were and there were plenty, and we will definitely deep dive into like all of the different wrestlers that Vince picked up. That they like it's so deep that like some of the people that you always looked at as being even mid carders or just side shows. They were the top people in the territories where they came from mm-hmm. and were just made to be part of the big show. Mm-hmm. And pretty much be second or third field of Hulk Hogan. And Hulk Hogan had his start in these uh, territories we're talking about. He he was in Southeastern too. Right. Like he started like Hulk Hogan actually and also with Brutus Beefcake actually started in Memphis as the Boulder Brothers, Terry and Ed. Let's see. And in 1979, both Terry and Ed Boulder toured both the Memphis Territory where Jerry Lawler was the king of Memphis, Tennessee. And also ended up in Southeastern Championship Wrestling in Knoxville. And Terry and Hulk Hogan as Terry Boulder ended up having a famous arm wrestling match with Andre the Giant, or very known as Dre the G. <laughs> yeah, cool. but you'll learn about all our different names for wrestlers later on. So you had Hulk Hogan and Dre the G in an, a famous arm wrestling match where. Hulk Hogan looked like he was about to win, but Andre ended up <laughs> turning it around. And then right when he was about to beat Hulk Hogan, the manager ended up distracting him. And then Hogan actually beat Andre with this table and, and causing blood. But that was one of the first parts of that early rivalry that people know as Hulk Hogan and Dre the G wrestling at WrestleMania 3 where Hulk Hogan was yeah, body slammed them even though there were different wrestlers before Hulk Hogan body slammed Dre the G like Harley Race who is the world heavyweight champion for the NWA in the late 70s also by slamming Andre the Giant first. Well, well, maybe not first first, but before Hulk Hogan did. So, that's just one example. But, back to Southeastern and Continental. Continental had his name changed in the middle of 85. And had different wrestlers like Tommy Rich and Terry Taylor would come in. But they would not be as big as other territories like... Let me think. You also had Mid-South. But Continental just stayed in its lane. And didn't get caught into what would end up becoming a proto-WCW movement by Jim Crockett Promotions in the Carolinas. But we'll get into 
into what happened with Crockett in a little bit. But Continental stayed in its lane. It didn't really become a big territory. And it was it was a um, Continental was a very interesting and uh, profitable promotion. Yeah, like, you know, with everything, considering everything that was going on, right? It was like it's pretty much stayed in its lane, and stayed reserved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like especially up until like about '87 when Continental stopped paying his NWA dues uh. and started joining with the AWA. Mm-hmm. And then in 1988, you had Hot Stuff A Gilbert, and get this. Paul Heyman come down from Memphis to be the Booker's. Well, now they call them creative writers <laughs> of Continental Championship Wrestling, and they created such angles like you could go on YouTube and look up. I'd like to talk to Tom. Now that was an angle in a storyline where Dr. Tom Pritchard, who was also the last Continental Territory champion before the company folded in December of 89, Mm -hmm. he was speaking with Gordon Soley, who was the host of not just Continental, but he hosted Florida Wrestling in Georgia Georgia in the early 80s. But in Continental for 1988... He'll say everything for a point, you know? <laughs> right. So for Continental in 1988, yeah, there was this one... There was this one rascal named the Dirty White Boy. Ah, and... And then... The Dirty White Boy had his manager slash valet, the Dirty White Girl. Right. And she had gone on the TV time up to the TV studio sign where it had Continental Championship Wrestling in the studio display. And she told Gordon Soley over and over, I'd like to talk to Tom. I want to talk to Tom. And she was crying her little alligator need, tears and shit. I need, I need to talk to Dr. Tom Pritchard. Right, and just desperate and shit. So then Tom Pritchard comes out, and then she's sporting this black eye from apparently getting whooped by Dirty White Boy. So then she's crying about the situation, and, and Dr. Tom's saying, you know, that's the bed you made, and you got a lie in it. Pretty much, alright, so for those of y'all that don't know, you, you made your bed and now you lie in it. That's pretty much saying, now nah, hold this cell. <laughs> but, what happened was, the dirty white boy had ambushed Dr. Dr. Tom, Tom Pritchard. And this was on local TV. This was on local TV around Alabama and TV. North Florida. So it was surprising. But... Dirty White Boy ended up really, 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 really beating Dr. Tom Pritchard to a pulp. And then, 
handcuffing him to the ring and then put a noose around his neck to hang him. Now, some of y'all saw that also being done from Roman Reigns earlier this year, earlier last year. I forgot what that was in WWE, but I know it dealt with Roman Reigns doing the same thing. But it got its start in the middle of 1988, and it was written by none other than Paul Heyman. So, yeah, that idea that it changed into with Roman Reigns was probably just a recycled one from Paul Heyman from Continental 1988. So, yeah, I'm doing local history when it comes to Southeastern Continental Wrestling. And the territory of just out of just Alabama and Knoxville and North Florida just was not that strong to last because it had a few factors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other Florida territory, which was like from Tallahassee on down, ended up getting absorbed into Crockett Promotions. One which was uh, what's that uh, championship wrestling from Florida? Yep. Okay. And then Eddie Graham. Right. And then that and then just the fact that people were more tuning into the WWF and Crockett just took away from Continental and Continental just folded at the end of eighty nine. But one outside of the Armstrongs, one key wrestler was in Continental at the very end. They ended up going to WCW. And that was Mick Foley as Cactus Jack Manson. He was like a refugee, really. Like, you know, he was like one of those guys that we actually saw on television that, like, um, you know, had a mysterious origin. Like, right. Terry Gordy, your Terry Gordy, or your Michael Michael Hayes, you know, like, like you know, getting their first chops in Dalton. We really saw... Mick Foley for the first time in Continental Championship Wrestling. Yeah, well, as Cactus Jack. As yeah. Cactus Jack Manson. See, now he tried having, he actually tried having a short stint in the WWF, like in the mid-80s as Mick Foley. Mm-hmm. But then by 1987, going into 88, that's when he was Cactus Jack. In Memphis, that was part of the same network as Continental Championship Wrestling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Memphis and Continental were part of the AWA network. So they all worked together. Like, I'll explain that later, too. Mm-hmm. But Mick Foley showed up as, as Cactus Jack in Memphis and then later on in Continental Wrestling as a member of the Tennessee Stud Stable that would go yeah. between both territories. Yeah. What's the uh, who was the Tennessee Stud Stable? Was it uh, Dick Slater? Not really. Like no, it was it was the Fullers and Brickhouse Brown and Gorgeous Jimmy Golden. That was Bunkhouse yeah. Buck in WCW. Oh, okay, okay then, okay then. So yeah. yeah, so Mick was the diamond in the rough that would end up in WCW a few weeks later. And his career started taking off from there. Mm-hmm. 
on the national scene. Right. All right, so I just added that for local flavor, but the main part that we really have to discuss is how he got... It's pretty much how you got the WWF versus WCW in the 90s, but it that actually predates to the WWF and the NWA Saturday Wars of the 80s that goes virtually undiscussed in most circles now. Because what you have is that the NWA is still around now, but people look at it as just being a joke company when, in fact, it's still the oldest running wrestling promotion in the United States that the WWE had been a member of on more than one occasion. Because, as we discussed earlier, we had Capital Wrestling under Grandpa Jackson, Big Vince McMahon. And Capital Wrestling was a member of the, of the NWA from the NWA's inception in 1947 until January of 1963 when Lou Thez beat the original Nature Boy Buddy Rogers mm-hmm. for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. Was it, uh, was it the best of three falls? It was supposed to be. But somebody didn't like the outcome. Right, yeah, see, Big Vince definitely hated the fact that most NWA World Heavyweight Championship matches were best two out of three falls. So that means that so that meant that you had to pin your opponent twice or mm-hmm. make them tap out or mm-hmm. however. Yeah, either way, you had to win me. twice. Yeah. yeah. Either way, you had to win twice, but the... Match was created to be a one-fall match by the NWA Board of Directors. Now, the Board of Directors was pretty much kind of like the Senate of professional wrestling in a way because you had representatives from all the different territories, including including Capital Wrestling, Mid-Atlantic. Then you had South, yeah, pretty much Gulf Coast. And the tri-state and mid-America territories, just different representatives for the different parts of the country that the NWA covered. Because the reason why the National Wrestling Alliance was founded was because there was wrestling promotions in all the different parts of the country that were claiming who they would like to have as a voted world heavyweight champion, but... The NWA just brought together a vote in the sense of democracy. This is who we want as our one world heavyweight champion. Mm-hmm. But yeah, basically, what it was. Yeah. All right. So in 1960, the American Wrestling Association ended up being founded because Vern Gagne, who was a promoter out of Minneapolis. And deserves a whole episode for himself. Mm-hmm. Like he had challenged Pat O'Connor, who was the current NWA World Heavyweight Champion in 1960, to a world title match. Yeah. But after three months of not 
wrestling him, Vern, who had created the AWA, said, I'm going to name myself World Heavyweight Champion, and that's how we're going to start the AWA. Mm-hmm. Now, that was 1960. Now, 1963 was the big match between Luthez, who is also one of the greatest world heavyweight champions of all time, and the original Nature Boy Buddy Rogers, who Big Vince loved to have as one of his top draws that brought people to the matches and to the shows. Well, the match was scheduled for one fall uh-huh. instead of the normal traditional two out of three. Uh-huh. And in that one fall, Luthez ended up winning the match and regaining the world title. Big Vince McMahon and a few other promoters were against that you know, were against that decision. And since they were so hell-bent on having the original Nature Boy Buddy Rogers as their champion, Big Vince took his ball, went home, and decided, let's create the World Wide Wrestling Federation. And with that, he not only had the original Nature Boy Buddy Rogers, he also had Bobo Brazil, which is one of the <laughs> most, in this era, unknown and unheralded black wrestlers of all time. But is also one of the founding fathers of black wrestling. Because, mm-hmm. believe it or not, Bobo Brazil was one of, was the first wrestler to hold a championship in WWE history. Because... Though he gave original Nate Buddy Rogers the WWF championship in the middle of April 1963, Big Vince had awarded Bobo Brazil with his own United States championship. Mm. Now, as now. The one thing about the old NWA territories is that everybody had their own version of what they were allowed to have their own version of the United States Heavyweight Championship, which could be confusing. But the one that (laughs) came out of Detroit, well, let's discuss that part. Let's discuss that part. Let's keep it within the context of the mm. Worldwide Wrestling Federation. Yeah. So, at the beginning of April 1963, Big Vince gives Bobo Brazil a United States Heavyweight Championship. Mm-hmm. Within the uh, Worldwide Wrestling Federation. Right, yep. independently. Yes. But then, about, oh, about two and a half weeks later, just about, Later on in April 1963, original nature boy Buddy Rogers is is given the title of 
WWF champion. But people won't tell you that Bobo Brazil actually was the first singles champion in WWE history, but was never given the WWE championship to win at all. Mm. Because Mm. Big Vince just kept that U.S. heavyweight championship in rotation, but Bobo was never able to win well, he wasn't booked to win. Yeah, since, since we want to call wrestling fake and not respect kayfabe, let's not. Bobo Brazil was never given the green light to be the first black world champion, which ended up being Bearcat Wright for another promotion they named the WWA. But yeah, the World Wrestling Association. Yeah. Yeah, but Bobo was never booked and scheduled to be the first black WWE champion. And that's an eternal travesty when it comes to WWE history that had to be corrected 20 to 30 years later when The Rock ended up being the first champion of African descent as an Afro-Samoan to be the WWE champion. And then first African-American champion being Kofi Kingston. Uh-huh. And then later on, Biggie Langston and now Bobby Lashley. Well, it was right. Bobby Lashley. It was Bobby Lashley. Um, I tell you, you just, with all that you just said right there, it just made me think of something. Um, and I'm going to hold it to the next segment because you're talking about... Um, you talking about Bobo Brazil. We have to talk about something that is very important that he's a part of. Right. Right. So let me stop this segment right here and we'll be right back. I often think about how many the legacy of black wrestlers in professional wrestling. Like I can name them. I can name them on my hand. I can name The Rock. Can we name The Rock? Oh, yeah. Can we name Dwayne The Rock Johnson? We can name The Rock. We can name his father. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because it's like with The Rock, it's like you got to really think outside of just your boxes of what black is. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like we know that Dwayne's not African-American, but if you look at just being a man of African descent, he is Afri- Afro-Samoan, and that counts as black in this sense. Mm-hmm. We got to look outside of black only being African-American. Right. Right. So, yeah, The the Rock definitely counts. Yeah, and plus by, by his uh, father being Rocky Johnson. Right, the soul man. Yes, yes. And um, we can also count... The junkyard dog. Yeah, J yeah, JYD is yeah, like he is what a pioneer. Like people mm-hmm. probably wouldn't like it's a few people that probably wouldn't want JYD as part of their black rushmore in favor of more latter black black wrestlers that were known as being on national TV. Yeah, and winning championships like. 
a Booker T or somebody like Bobby, mm. or like Bobby Lashley. Like I got to say Bobby Lashley is really becoming one of the greatest black wrestlers of all time. If you know, like he his legacy is not really as rated just because he spent so much time in TNA and Impact. Right, and I got you. You know how some how some of these folk podcasters and how some of these they don't recognize. Uh, if, it, if it if it didn't happen in WWE, it doesn't count to. to right, them. right. They, Even though TNA Impact had the NWA World Heavyweight Championship, which is the coveted. Sweet Most, Charlotte. Yes, yes. It, it, even though they had Sweet Charlotte, the greatest, the oldest right, world see, heavyweight championship in wrestling. Right. Now, Bobby Lashley won a lot of championships as part of independent TNA. But, guess who the first black NWA world heavyweight champion was that was in TNA, and that's also not just the first black NWA World Heavyweight Champion, but also the first black champion in Impact history. I'm gonna take a wild guess at it. It was uh Ron Killings, or to WWE fans, our truth. Right, the same our truth that has been the 7-Eleven. Waffle House, Waffle House, Waffle House champion. champion. Yeah, yeah. That are that same our truth reached immortality when it came to the oldest world heavyweight championship in the game, and because just like what you said, TNA when they first started used the NWA World Heavyweight Championship as their lead champion. That also made our truth the first black world champion in Impact history. So this overshadows, um, and not taking away from the Florida State, one of Florida State's greatest alumni in athletics. Um, the man they know in the acolytes as Farouk Ron Simmons. He won the uh, WCW. World Heavyweight Championship. I know that's that's kind of convoluted because it's not. He won the WCW World Heavyweight Championship while World Championship Wrestling was still an NWA. Was still under the NWA when umbrella. Came back, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. We'll have to discuss more of Ron Simmons. Okay. During the big gold blunder. Okay. Okay, that's a whole nother subject. So that's, that's a whole, whole nother that's subject. A, that's a whole nother episode. But Ron Simmons did win. A world heavyweight championship. Right, he was the first WCW champion. Right, and he is also an ideal for Black Rushmore because of his legacy with both with both WCW and the WWF WWE. Right, he kind of gets slept on when it comes to that conversation mm. because you have people that would more favor Booker T. But he deserves Ron Simmons very much deserves to be on right. Black Ru- Black Mount Rushmore. Yeah, like yes, he 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 crawled so Booker T could walk, right, and do the spinner Rooney. Basically, <laughs> I mean, and then amongst the amongst the uh world world championships that Booker T has won, he's a multiple time world champ world tag team champion with uh. With his brother Stevie Ray in Harlem Heat, 
he won a um, WCW World Television Belt Championship. Uh, he won the United States Championship. So that pretty much made Booker T a, a WCW Grand Slammer. I mean, if you're going by World Wrestling Entertainment Grand Slam champ uh, standards, yes, he is a Grand Slam champion. Yeah, and true. plus he won... Plus, he was a double champion. He held the uh, United States Championship along with the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. And, that, and that's rare. And he was also a king of the ring. And he was also a king of the ring. So, yeah, that's a lot to the that, resume. But, but even after all the accolades that Booker T and Ron Simmons and The Rock have all had, and Bobby Lashley, like... It's still plenty of controversy, controversy over who would really be in a core Black Rushmore because a lot, of, a lot of our opinions are based on just a genuine, just a generation gap because we have so many generations that saw different wrestlers at different times, like, and I can name three off the top of my head that really were. Had their legacies tarnished by going to the WWF because Coco Ware. Ooh, you gonna go there with it? Yeah, we 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 gotta go there because you going there with it? The, because the slander on and then you said Coco Ware, not Coco Beware, not the right, Birdman, just Coco Ware, Butchery, Hacksaw, the original let's, Hacksaw. Let's just let's let's you can't. You can't just say Butch Reed. You have to say Hacksaw Butch Reed. And the original one, too, because he was a Hacksaw before Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Right. So, yeah. Coco, Coco Ware and Hacksaw, well, original Hacksaw Butch Reed are way more underrated than people will let on because... They don't realize that in the mid-80s, Coco Ware was pretty much the hottest ticket in Memphis not named Jerry the King Lawler. Hmm. Hmm. Tell it. Coco even had an NWA World Heavyweight Championship matchup against what? Nature Boy Ric Flair. Huh. What, what, what did this happen? This, this was like... Fall of 1985, just before Starcade. What? And right, what? So, this was allowed to happen. Yeah, a black wrestler wrestling Nature Boy Ric Flair in the Mid South. This was unheard of. In the Mid South, because the thing is, is like Flair was too close to Starcade '85, and that batch built up to Dusty. For Coco to win, but if you were to look at the effort and how hard Coco fought in that match, and you can <laughs> you could look, all you had to do is just go on YouTube and look up Coco Ware and Ric Flair, mm-hmm. and that match will show up. And that was like an over twenty minute match in the Mid South Coliseum, and that crowd was rabid for Coco to win, but. Ric Flair ended up winning on technicalities and ended up wrestling against Dusty Rhodes in Starcade 85. But I still recommend watching that match for anybody. 
because when people think of Coco Ware, they think of Coco Beware. The bird man with the parrot with the parakeet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With yeah, Frankie yeah. the parakeet and only being a low mid carter at best. They didn't even get this man a uh uh an intercontinental title shot. I mean in not WWF. one championship in the WWF. But I will say and this also adds to his legacy. He also was somewhat of a mentor to Owen Hart too, as part of high energy. High energy, yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, Coco has his place in black wrestling because he was a multi-time champion in Memphis. Even in USWA Memphis in the 90s. Oh, yes, he did. So, he really... Take your time, Pastor. <laughs> pastor got about the itis by now. <laughs> <laughs> the pastor got some of this, uh, some of this good food that I came off of the, uh, that came off of the grill that I cooked. You know what I'm saying? You know how you have like Jr's barbecue sauce. You got, you have. You have D. You have uh, Curtis's um, the work on the grill. You know that's not that's not a subtle name for it. But I do work on the grill and everything. And I invite people to come over and stuff. I ain't made my own barbecue sauce yet, but you know it's in the making. It's in the making. You know what I'm saying? So uh, we we talked about Ron Simmons. We talked about Coco Ware. Um, what are the black yeah, uh hacksaw butchery? Yeah, let's go deeper into butchery because yeah, yeah, yeah. People only saw him around '87 or '88 in the WWF as a heel. That's the natural, right? That's the natural. Had his dad's hair blonde. Yes, but he was a top guy in mid south in '85, and that's where Vince McMahon picked him up. Mm-hmm. After yeah, you know, months after picking up the junkyard dog from the mid south territory in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yes. But Butch was very charismatic, and he also got world title shots against Ric Flair in the early eighties in championship wrestling from Florida. Mm-hmm. Yes, he did, and, and he yeah. made he almost made short. He made some. I ain't gonna say short work. He made some real. Competitive matches with with uh, against Ric Flair, you know. Right. Yeah, he really went all out. Even though they weren't for, they weren't for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. That showed you what he could do if the title was on the line. Actually, there were instances where the title was on the line, but because of the politics. Mm-hmm. That kept mm-hmm. Ric Flair in charge. Yeah, he just never won it. But he always showed the effort that he needed to. But maybe it just wasn't the time yet for the NWA from a social level. Do you think that had something to do with the uh, diversity or? I would definitely say the diversity because that's what took the WWF so long to get to Dwayne well The Rock mm-hmm. and then later on the Kofi Kingston that's what that whole it's kind of like that whole Kofi Mania storyline from 
couple of years ago. People look at it as just a storyline, but that's really life imitating art in a way because while we discussed Bobo Brazil, it was like big Vince McMahon in the 60s and the 70s had pretty much a world champion of just about any other race and just about any other ethnicity except for African American. Mm-hmm. And that's why Bobo Brazil was just continuously given Big Vince's U.S. title that would become defunct in 1976 and be replaced by the original North American Championship in the WWF, which would end up becoming the Intercontinental Championship. Which is a story for another day. Right, yeah, that would definitely be part of another day. Yeah, right? we. I think I think the Intercontinental Championship, the origin of it, deserves its own story on here. If we was to give it to it, then I think we'll give it to it. And I would like for you to come on the come on my podcast again and discuss that. Oh yeah, you know, like it is so much to talk about. Like even just trying to consolidate it in one setting is just a task. Yes, just as much as this this episode and knowledge we've been laying down on this. Uh, I would also like to um, add to the Black Mount Rushmore is uh, Kamala, the Unigandan Unigandan giant, the Unigandan nightmare. Kamala Jim Harris. Yes, the the recently deceased Jim Harris from uh, um, he was in a small town in he he was born in a small town in Mississippi. Actually, right. He actually spent his last days in that area. Wow. Out out in the Mississippi Delta. Nothing, nothing better, nothing better than to be back at home while you're going through your time. So, uh, who else do we have? Who, who else do we have that we can add to the Black Mount Rushmore? See, well, I did, I, I did, I think we did have a strong case for Bobby Lashley because yes, he was a, a world champion. Right, yeah, uh, in multiple federations. Yes. But the one reason why people wouldn't leave him, on, wouldn't put him on Black Rushmore is because he spent his time outside of the WWE and they just have closed minds. And Well, I have, I have uh, indifference to that, and it's just like how people, how Vince lets folks on the WWE Hall of Fame, but that's not the only Hall of Fame. You have a pro wrestling Hall of Fame. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I look at it. I look at it a lot like that. Like in my book, if you've won a world championship, then you're always going to be. And if you're a black person, you're always going to have. You know. Um, oh, do we let Jackie on there? Oh, uh, hmm. for the that women's because we we just a- spent a lot of time talking about. Right, see, and, and that brings up a point of controversy when it comes to intersectionality mm. is that when people think of wrestling, they don't think of the growing legacies of women, and especially black women, that's been in the game. And you just mentioned somebody great with Jacqueline because she was the lead sister in wrestling. Throughout the 90s, whether she was Jacqueline in the WWF and WCW or as Miss Texas 
in Memphis for the United States Wrestling Association. So yeah. Oh. So yeah, Jackie has a strong legacy, and you know what? You could also even have Awesome Kong. Oh, that's another one. Awesome Kong. You have Jazz from ECW. Love yeah, her. Jazz from ECW. I remember her. Jazz from ECW. Yes. People yeah. who really, who really put in. Who really put in the work? They didn't just show up and just got on, you know. So they would they went through the same things that uh Sherry Bartell went through, that Alundra Blaze Medusa went through, um Lalani Kai, who Bull Nakano, uh, Wendy Bull Nakano, uh, which is one of my goats, uh, Wendy Richter, Judy yeah, Martin, Judy who- Martin. Who was one of the inventors of the power bomb? By, by the way. Whoa, we gonna have to deep dive into that. You know, yeah. as far as like you know, as far as like we gonna have to do a whole episode about wrestling moves and stuff. You know, right? What I'm saying? Yeah. See, you know, we yeah, this is all pretty much the pipe bomb. Like we have so much that we have to discuss that. It just can't be discussed all in one setting. Right. I think yeah, this is something stick with us. Yeah, I think just this is I think this is something that has to be discussed over a period of time because we cover multiple periods of time. You know, we didn't cover we didn't cover it over the eighties, nineties. And we need we still haven't even touched the Attitude Era, the Monday Night Wars, WWF versus really WCW. The, we haven't even really touched the Saturday Wars either. For real, we ain't even mentioned Saturday mm-hmm. night's main event or anything, you know what I'm saying? Or, do we have any more do we have did we miss any black wrestlers that need to be on Mount Rushmore? Black Mount Rushmore? Let's see. We named the Rock, Butch Reed, Ron Simmons, uh R Truth, Bobby Lashley, The Rock. Let's see. Then you have a few lesser known ones like Iceman King Parsons. Oh, Iceman! The Iceman. That was a Texas legend. Wow, coming and, out of Missouri too. Yep, and he and he came up with the term Rudy Poot, <laughs> which ended up becoming Rudy Poo. <laughs> that's that says something a lot about uh, the late. Uh, Fritz von Erich, he uh, he knew how to he knew how to direct wrestlers and to grab talent. You know, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, that was one place. World class championship wrestling was one place we could see Gary Hart, uh, Kamala, the great uh, what's the great Kabuki was there? The great Kabuki. Yeah, yeah. The great Kabuki was there. And then and then Gary also had Kabuki in Georgia too. Sure did. Sure did. Uh, of course, his sons, the uh, the uh, Devon Eriks, Kevin, David, and uh, Kerry. Um, you had the Iceman. You had um, Texas Red, aka the Undertaker. For real, you know, a lot of people got their starts, got their major starts in a uh, world class. Um, Rick Rude. Ravishing Rick Rude. Like, right. He didn't start there, but he ended up becoming right. their first independent world champion. Oh, I know I know a few friends that remembers the Dingo Warrior. Oh, yeah. Oh, you mean Blade Runner Rock from Mid-South? I mean, 
um, one of the freedom fighters. Oh, you mean Jimmy Hellwig? Jim Hellwig, aka the Ultimate Warrior. Yeah, that guy. That guy. You also got the uh, the Freebirds, the Fabulous Freebirds. You had uh, King Kong Bundy. Definitely King Kong. King Bundy. Kong Bundy. You had Bruiser Brody. And the oh, one of my favorite managers. I believe this man is the fa- my favorite manager, wrestling manager of all time. The General Skandar Akbar. Oh yeah. Though I would say Skandar Akbar is more famous in Mid South in the UWF. Ah, because of how he was feuding with Ted DiBiusey <laughs> back before he ran to a million dollars. I think that that was a spark. That was a spark right there because, like you know, uh, General General Akbar, he had one of the most stalwart stables in wrestling. You know, he had uh, at one time he had King Kong Bundy. Kabbalah, the Ugandan giant, uh, the missing link. Oh yeah, the missing link. The missing link. He was a part of the uh, Devastation Incorporated. Right. Yes. Mm. Let me think. He was one of those guys. He was one of those guys that I put next to uh, Iron, the Iron Sheik, aka Steve Steve Harvey. Harvey. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? Let's run down. Let's run down a whole bunch of wrestlers that we refer to as something other than their their uh, wrestling names. Okay, right, we got so we, we got already mentioned Andre the Giant is Dre, Dre the G. G. <laughs> I the Iron Sheik is Steve Harvey. Oh. We actually had somebody to pop up on Facebook. a wrestling group post on Facebook and was like, I didn't know Steve Harvey had a wrestling career. And it's like... <laughs> hey, if you don't believe us, Google Iron Sheik for pictures and then Google Steve Harvey. <laughs> if you don't believe us, you will see it for yourself. Just, just find a pic of the Iron Sheik for one... And then find a pic of Steve Harvey. <laughs> if you don't believe us. So, yeah. Okay, who else, man? Was it, uh... Is it Triple H or anybody like that? Oh. Oh, are you talking about Al Perez and Seth Rollins? Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. That would, this one has me rolling on the floor every time you mention it. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, it could be in the caption that Steve Rollins did something. And it's like, Al Perez has... A tremendous career, you know what I'm saying? Because right. <laughs> we will remember, I remember Al Perez wrestling in like world class and then NWA in like the late 80s and stuff, you know? Right, yeah, because yeah, cause, yeah, cause Seth freaking Rollins was in Crockett Promotions in 1988. This is crazy. This is crazy right here. Urban legend. Urban legend. All right. So, legend has it that Seth freaking Rollins actually started in the NWA in 1988 around March. And he was getting a good push as a heel, but he let his youth go to his head and wanted to try to arrange to have a shoot match against Ric Flair where... He 
Yeah, where he could pretty much instigate it. Mm-hmm. As a shoot and not go on script with Ric Flair in order to try to win the NWA world title. And that backfired on him. Mm-hmm. And next thing you know, Seth freaking Rollins goes to the WWF. <laughs> and has a few matches against the Red Rooster and the Ultimate Warrior before Seth ended up going to let's see he was in the WWF but he was also in the Global Wrestling Federation in the early 90's right that, that started off in Texas and Global Wrestling Federation was kind of like one of those uh, offshoots or like or reboot of a world class trying to start back up, right? Right, like it, like it wasn't really in the NWA umbrella though. Right, because they had been, they had got up from one of the in world class got up from under the NWA umbrella, like around what 84, 80. It was one of those times where uh, one of the Von Erichs got a title shot, and you know. You know what the thing was about Ric Flair holding the belt like he'll lose it to you in your hometown, but he'll get it back like a week or two later. True. Right. Yeah, it was one of those. It was one of those things right there. So, um, you know what? I'm a, uh, I'm a end the show on this note because there's going to be a part two. Yeah, like, it's no telling how many parts we can make out of this, like... We could make deep dives. We could make deep dives like the guy that does kayfabe commentaries with uh, Jim Cornette and stuff. And then, you know, I feel like we just getting our, we just getting our toes. We just right. dipping our toes in the water with it. Ice boy. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's so much stuff to cover. And I think with just this episode, we covered so much more than just what other podcasts either professional or amateur have covered because like you know our whole goal with this episode is to get people interested in it even with just this 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 last part right right here you know right like yeah we're gonna definitely break it down to all the different topics but if you really just want to just hear us just ramble and talk and just have that kind of informal barbershop kind of feel be on watch for the pipe bomb. That's it. That's it. You just really just want to just hear us just go off the cuff when it comes to it because this is stuff that